Well, um, I remember during the orientation ceremony for my freshman year at FSU, we're all freshmen sitting, ready to start the year of classes, and the keynote speaker described a semester-long argument with her English professor when she was a student. At the beginning of the uh, semester, her professor asked the question, raise your hand if you believe your life has plot. And our keynote speaker was only one of a few students who raised her hand and said, yes, I believe my life has plot. And she went on to say that that semester was an ongoing debate with her professor and it changed her life. But I wanna ask you, Incarnation, do you believe that your life has plot? We like to believe that our lives have a clear narrative arc, right? But sometimes we face moments in our lives that threaten that idea. What do we do when we hit disturbing plot twists? As Christians, we believe that God is writing the plot of history and the plot of our own personal lives. Psalm 139 says, you saw, my, uh, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. The plot's written already. But if we're honest, sometimes we face plot twists in our lives that cause our to question if our lives have any plot to begin with. Like our lives are a plotless sequence of happenstances. Or maybe worse still, we face moments when God seems to be writing our lives as a tragedy. In our scripture reading today, we will see a life that in many ways seems to be authored as a tragedy. Today is the third Sunday of Advent, a church season when we prepare for the coming of Christ. And today's the day, as you have uh, seen, is the day we remember John the Baptist. And we're going to be looking at the great and tragic life of John. We're going to look at the new age of the kingdom that we see Jesus talking about and ushering in. And finally, we're going to ponder two responses to King Jesus that we see in this passage. So please turn to Matthew 11, 2 um, through 19. I don't have the page number, so 816. Thank you, brother. Um, 816, Matthew 11, 2 through 19. Let's look at the great and the tragic life of John. To understand the ways in which life was John's life was both great and tragic, you need to know a little backstory. We already got some of it. Now, here's a man whose life has a very clear plot. And like we heard, before John the Baptist was born, an angel shows up to John's father, Zechariah, and tells Zechariah, let me tell you what your son's life is going to be all about. In Luke chapter 1, this is what the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah about John. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah, and he will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. People knew before John was even conceived that John's role was going to be to 
prepare Israel for the coming of the Lord. And while John the Baptist is in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, he's leaping when Jesus comes on the scene in the womb of Mary. Now, flash forward to John as an adult, we see him totally living his calling, preparing Israel for the coming true king. The biblical scholar Mark L. Strauss, he makes the point that all four of the Gospels see John's ministry as a launching of the Jesus movement. It was believed that Elijah would return to prepare the way for the everlasting king of Israel. And here is John in the wilderness, dressed like Elijah, eating what Elijah ate. I've noticed over the years that a lot of people like kind of view John as like an angry religious hippie. Like he's almost kind of like detached from reality, going and proclaiming. But if we look at John's clothing and diet, he's actually establishing his authority and his credibility and his identity, right? Um, remember that whenever you read the Bible, it's a cross-cultural experience. So we see, oh, he's eating like crickets and whatever, wearing weird clothes in the wilderness. But don't make the mistake when we, you know, cross cultures of being like, oh, that's weird. I don't get that. That's weird. Um, <laughs> actually, we see that this would have been seen as like, oh, my gosh, this guy, Elijah, this incredible guy. And even... Extra-biblical sources, there's a scholar named Josephus who lived about the same time as Jesus, and he wrote about John. And in contrast to the idea that John was just kind of a crazed preacher who's slightly detached, Josephus calls John a good man who had commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, righteousness towards one another, and piety towards God. Josephus goes on to write, Now many people came in crowds to see them, for they were greatly moved by his word. So he was so famous that we even have extra biblical sources writing about the ministry of John positively and establishing his credibility and authority. And now John is at the apex of his ministry. John is gathering huge crowds, and people are coming from all over, taking days and days and days to walk and see him, to be baptized, to repent, and Jesus shows up at the scene. Jesus is identified by John as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's identified as the Christ, the Son of God. And after Jesus is baptized by John, John's ministry starts to take a backseat. A few of his disciples, Andrew, they leave him and they become disciples of Jesus. Some other disciples come and tell John hey, all these people are responding to Jesus and going and seeing Jesus. And John doesn't say, oh, man, we got to whip our program back into shape. He says, this joy of mine is now complete. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And wouldn't it be nice if the narrative of John's life ended right there, right? <laughs> wouldn't that be great? I mean, you know, maybe John retires to the Galilean countryside. He stops eating locusts, starts eating, like, goat and fish, right? He, he likes sticking, skipping stones on the Galilee. He lives happily ever after, right? But no, plot twist, tragic plot twist. John finds himself in prison for calling out King Herod 
for taking his brother's wife and marrying her. And it's a testament to John's consistency. He's calling everyone to live righteously before God, even Herod and his desperate palace wife, right? In our passage today, John is sitting in prison, and he sends word to Jesus and asks, are you the one who is to come, or shall we wait for another? That question should cut us to the heart. Are you the one who is to come? If anyone knew that Jesus was the one to come, it was John. It was his cousin. It was John the forerunner. John leapt in the womb for him. I mean, in the womb. He's celebrating when he gets to the proximity of another womb of Jesus, right? He baptizes him. John hears the father's voice say, this is my well-beloved son. He saw God's spirit fall on John. He spent his entire ministry preparing for the people to come to King Jesus. And now John questions if Jesus is the Messiah. And if we look closer, we can actually see that John is scripturally justified for asking this question. Here's why. Part of the job description of the Messiah was to set captives free. And of course there was an expectation that that would be spiritual captivity, but there was a real expectation that in the kingdom of God, the saints who were wrongfully imprisoned for doing the work of God would be freed. Where did that idea come from? It comes from Jesus himself. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke 4, Jesus reads a prophecy in a synagogue from Isaiah that he claims is all about him. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's appointed me, or anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Messiah would proclaim liberty to the captives and set them free. And at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he said he was going to do it. And the people heard him say he was going to do it. So now John asks, are you the Messiah as he's sitting in prison? Assuming, based on Jesus' own words, that he's going to do the Messiah stuff now and set him free. And when Jesus hears John's question, how does he respond? He mentions all the things that the Messiah does except setting the prisoner. Look what Jesus says in verse 11. It sounds like Luke 4. It sounds like lots of other things. Go and tell John the things you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended because of me. On one hand, I think it would be a real comfort to John to know that Jesus was still at work. It's a comfort here. John was right. Jesus was to increase as the rightful king. There isn't somebody else who's coming. Not only was John right about Jesus, but but Jesus goes on to say that John was the greatest man who ever lived up until that point. He's greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than David, greater than Elijah, greater than Isaiah, greater than everyone so far. 
But it also would feel so tragic and disheartening and could potentially offend John that Jesus isn't setting the prisoners free. Jesus responds by saying, I'm doing all the Messiah stuff except the stuff that pertains to you in prison, John. And in a real sense, John's life is tragic. After preparing the way for the king of the universe, John will die at the hands of a foolish and childish King Herod. John is beheaded, and his head is given as a birthday present to Herod's petulant wife and stepdaughter. To understand how John's life could be so great and so tragic at the same time, we have to understand that kingdom of heaven that John or that Jesus is speaking about in verse 11. We've seen the greatness and the tragedy of John's life, but now let's move on and follow Jesus as he talks about the greatness of the kingdom of heaven. It's hard to fathom. We say it every week in Sunday when we pray the Lord's Prayer, but Jesus started the kingdom of heaven on earth. From a purely historical perspective, the Jesus movement has changed the moral fabric of the Greco-Roman world, Western civilization, and the globe. We think differently because of Jesus. If you look at the moral framework of the Roman mind, of the kind of Western mind before Jesus came on the scene, and then you look at it centuries after, you see that our moral assumptions point back to Jesus. But let's not talk about historically. Let's talk about spiritually, the beginning of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus brought heaven to earth. God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. Caesar's kingdom came, and his will was done in the surrounding lands so that everywhere started to look like Rome. So are there aqueducts in Rome? Yes. Now there are aqueducts wherever Caesar rules, right? The landscape of the surrounding lands starts to look like Rome, and the will of Caesar is carried out. But Jesus brings heaven's rule. He starts heaven's kingdom on earth. Is there blindness in heaven? No. So when Jesus comes on the scene, bringing the rule of heaven to earth, when he encounters blind people, blind people see. Because in heaven, there are no blind people. When the lame are lowered through the roof in Jesus' ministry, and they can't walk, Jesus heals them, and they go out leaping, praising God. When the deaf come in contact with Jesus, they hear. Their ears are opened. When Lazarus dies and Jairus' daughter dies, they're raised from the dead. Because death doesn't exist in heaven. The poor have good news preached to them. A hope and a future. Heaven is spreading because Jesus has come. Jesus is making all things new. Don't let your heart become numb to this reality, even though we pray it every week. God's kingdom has begun in Christ Jesus. I think the idea that we are least in the kingdom of heaven and, and 
that those who are least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than John has everything to do with our partnership with King Jesus and nothing to do with us, right? A Christian has been cleansed from all sin because of the blood of Jesus. And a Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit from whom God's blessing comes because of Jesus. We're now part of this incredible kingdom movement that did not exist prior to Jesus. And we can sing, I've got a river of life flowing out of me, makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. The early church carries this out. They start to do the exact same things that Jesus does once they're filled with his spirit. But at the same time, at the same time, while the kingdom is here now and inaugurated, it's not here in its fullness. It's often called the now and the not yet of the kingdom. People during the time of Jesus thought that once the Messiah came, all would be made right, right away. Jesus said, uh-uh, <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It starts small and then it grows. It doesn't all happen at once. And we can understand the now and the not yet of the kingdom conceptually, but what happens when we live this out personally? On the incredible side, I've prayed for strangers with sicknesses and watched Jesus heal them. There's one crazy story. We went overseas um, on a kind of partner trip to another college with InterVarsity, and this non-Christian college student, she came up to our table where we were engaging with students and sharing our faith, and we began to engage her and talk to her, but then she said she really couldn't focus because the pain of her shingles was distracting her. She was covered in shingles. She was in a lot of pain. So we just decided to stop and pray, and immediately all the pain left right that moment. And by the time she left the table, she had surrendered her life to Jesus, right? The kingdom is here. It's, Jesus is doing the same stuff that he did. Heaven is coming to earth. But then there are those experiences when we just don't see God pull through like we hoped. We ask for the messianic fulfillment stuff, for the things that are in Jesus' job description, but it still doesn't happen. For example, I remember a season of praying and praying with a friend that his wife would stay in a marriage only to see his wife divorce him. God loves faithful marriage unions. God is a peacemaker. We were praying and asking for something that God was all about, but it didn't happen. But in the midst of that marriage crisis, God was moving so powerfully in my friend's life in so many other ways. God was not healing the, ma the marriage, the thing that felt like the prison moment, but he was definitely moving. In the same way, Jesus doesn't address um, John's imprisonment, but he says he's clearly moving in other ways. The kingdom is now, it's here, but it's also not yet here in its fullness. So how will we respond when we face the not yet of the kingdom? We actually see 
two kinds of responses in this passage. One kind of response is to dismiss Jesus in the first place, and the other is to be offended. Those are two potential responses. Let's talk about the end of this passage, the dismissal briefly, verses 16 through 19. Then we'll circle back to verse 6. In verses 16 through 19, Jesus seems to be throwing up his hands with this generation. It's like generation whining. Um, What's happening, right? Why is he calling them out? Have you ever heard a complaint from someone or people, and then you like make big adjustments to meet their need, and then they complain about the big adjustments that you made to meet their need? Like, you make a sweet potato casserole for Thanksgiving, and someone's like, please don't make it with marshmallows. I hate marshmallows. You're like, fine, I won't make it with marshmallows. Then you make the sweet potato casserole with marshmallows too, with and without, so that everybody has what they want. And then no one eats the casserole, right? It wasn't about the marshmallows. They didn't want anything to do with the sweet potatoes. There was something going on beneath the marshmallows, right? So John comes and calls people to God with fasting and a spirit of solemn repentance. And the people say, nope, got a demon, right? Can't pay attention to that. Jesus comes. And he calls people to God, and he starts his ministry making wine at a wedding celebration, announcing God's kingdom is here. And they're like, yeah, big drunk. What are you doing? Right? Their critiques are disingenuous. It's not about the marshmallows. It's about the sweet potato. Or in this case, people are opposed to the ways of God. They aren't going to respond properly if the messenger is feasting or fasting because they are opposed to the message. I've had many conversations with students who reject the message of Jesus or walk away from their faith. And if they want to, we talk through the reasons why they're rejecting their faith. And sometimes there are sincere questions in the mix. But so often, I found that people left because they didn't want Jesus to be the boss of them. (laughs) Right? And I'd encourage you, if you're struggling with some aspect of King Jesus, don't just talk about the marshmallows. Be honest about the whole thing. Take stock of all the hesitations you ask, including the ways you would have to turn away from the things you don't want to turn away from to surrender. But now, let's look at the other potential response in verse 6 to Jesus. Jesus says to John, Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Like we said, John's in prison waiting for the Messiah who sets the prisoners free, and word gets back to John that he isn't setting prisoners free right now, or at least not John. And Jesus ends with, Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. The Greek word offend here can also mean fall away or stumble or even sin. And one commentator calls this a mild rebuke of John. In a sense, Jesus is saying, don't fall away from me, John, even though you don't understand. Don't hold anger towards me or fall into sin because of what's happening. 
one time um, when my nephew Asa was about three years old, he had to get some shots. And shots are absolutely terrifying if you're a child. Just like think about the sequence of events that happens with shots, right? Your parents are supposed to protect you from things like people with sharp adjects coming to stab you, right? But then you go to the doctor's office and they hold you down and let strangers come at you, right? That is not in the parent's job description, right? It's the opposite of what they're supposed to do, right? So the nurse comes in, my sister Katie's holding my nephew down. He's crying in fear. After the shots were done, he's hiccuping and he's drying his tears. And he looks at his mom and he says, I forgive you. <laughs> now, of course, um, my sister didn't do anything wrong deserving of forgiveness, right? In fact, she was showing love. But I think what my nephew was trying to communicate is, I don't know what the heck happened back there. <laughs> but I'm still sticking with you. And I'm not going to hold that against you. I'm not offended. I'm not falling away. Incarnation. I wonder if some of us might need to think back to moments in your life where you feel like God was asleep at the wheel. Where you feel like, God, what the heck? What that? What was that? I don't know what that was, but I'm still sticking with it. And I'm not going to hold this against you. Jesus says that we're blessed when we aren't offended and we don't fall away in the midst of the tragic plot twist. Of course, there will be tears. Of course, we'll have big, very loud, hairy questions for God, right? But my prayer is that for us, we will move forward trusting in the Lamb of God who was slain for us and not being offended not being offended in the now and the not yet, not being offended or falling away in the tragic plot twists. Jesus is calling to trust him. What are the tragic plot twists in your life or in your friend's life or in your family's life? What would it look like to revisit those moments and say, Lord, I don't know what the heck that was but I'm not falling away. And I'm not going to hold this against you. Let's pray. Jesus, um, moments like this can be really raw. So I pray your spirit would cover us, protect us, and do the work of 
help us do the work of really coming with our questions to you. And Lord, no matter what, we pray that we would walk in the blessedness of not being offended. In Jesus' name.